If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. In the summer of 1990, three women fell into the crosshairs of a dangerous man. They were regulars among Bellevue, Washington's vibrant, hard-partying nightlife, and they were murdered, their broken bodies violated and posed after death. Their killer's method linked them as a series, whose recurrences were growing nearer and nearer, but he'd left few clues aside from his violence. This is The Prowler, Part 1 of 2. Bellevue, Washington police detective Marvin Skeen, the senior officer in his unit, was once described as sneaky fast by a colleague. Quote, a lot of fools took him lightly. You can look them up in the penitentiary. The weekend of Friday, June 22, 1990, Detective Skeen was assigned on call for person's crimes, meaning murder, rape, and assault. It was a bit after 7 a.m. on the 23rd when the fire department radioed, quote, a male body naked, possible DOA, behind the Black Angus restaurant. Bellevue, a Seattle suburb, was described by Jack Olson in his book Charmer. Quote, the East Side had its own Silicon Valley, with companies like Microsoft, Boeing, 
Nintendo of America, in lustrous new buildings. The centerpiece of the area was a prospering metropolis called Bellevue. In the years following World War II, Bellevue had grown from a placid suburb surrounded by berry farms to a mushrooming city with high-rise buildings, restaurants featuring salmon steak tartare, health food bars serving arugula and radicchio, gaudy nightclubs, and a majority of citizens with well-worn credit cards. Sleek women with chihuahuas on their laps steered Beamers and Mercedes 450 SLs along streets lacking sidewalks, reminiscent of Beverly Hills and Bel Air. Bellevue is to the east of Seattle, just on the other side of Lake Washington. Tiny, wealthy, exclusive Mercer Island occupies the lake between the two cities. In 1990, the Pacific Northwest was beginning to truly thrum to the sounds of grunge. That seismic shift in music was still some time away, and local bands like Mud Honey, Melvin's, the Gits, and Green River, among many others, were packing the rock clubs, to the detriment of more traditional discos and bars. The next year would bring the release of genre classics like Nirvana's Nevermind, Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger, and Pearl Jam's Ten, all of which would cement grunge's domination for the next few years. The Black Angus Steakhouse, to which Detective Skeen had been summoned, made it by as a run-of-the-mill restaurant franchise, until its desperate need to compete against more exciting venues in the area forced them to transform into a club, nightly, from 9 until 2 a.m. The McDonald's at the Crossroads Shopping Mall in Bellevue shared a parking lot with the Black Angus. The dumpster corral around back of the Black Angus was situated between the two buildings. It was open on one side, with the other three consisting of eight-foot-high wooden fencing. Within the fence, next to the dumpster, sat an industrial trash compactor. The sun was coming out as Detective Skeen walked across the parking lot to the dumpster corral. As he neared it, he could make out the naked body lying just outside of the fencing, and he noted that the radio had been mistaken about them. It was a female. Quote, Her left foot was crossed over her right ankle. Her hands were crossed on her stomach, left over right. A fur cone was tucked under her hands. Her head was turned a little to the left, and a white plastic lid from a Frito-Lay dip container covered her right eye. All she wore was a gold choker with a white pendant and a gold watch. Right next to the body was a little pile of debris, as though somebody had swept up but hadn't collected it yet. A broom leaned against the fencing a couple of feet from the body. The face was misshapen from a beating. Her fingernails were painted with bold pink polish. There was no identification or identifying jewelry on the body. It was the first time in his career Detective Skeen had seen a posed body. He and his partner, Detective John Hansen, had the scene recorded on video. Quote, The victim had been repeatedly punched in the face, clubbed on the head, raped, throttled with her own choker, and kicked so hard that her liver split against her spinal column. Traces of dirt and foliage suggested an outdoor murder. It appeared that the killer may have spent as long as three or four hours with the body, and that vaginal and anal penetration had taken place after death. Twenty-one pieces of fiber evidence were collected from the body, and the victim's wristwatch using blacklight. Two stains on the upper right thigh, which appeared to be semen, were swabbed. The body showed no results from an extensive latent fingerprint search. The Jane Doe's blood alcohol content was pretty high, 0.14 at the time of her death. Detectives canvassed the Black Angus and other restaurants, clubs, and bars in the area for four long days. Places like McClala's, C.I. Shenanigans, Zuni's, Finn McCool's, and Cucina Cucina, 
And there's like a hundred more like that. That are just, <laughs> There's a place called the Mustard Seed. Yeah. All sorts of goofy Flam flams. Basically. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Isn't Cochina Cochina like still a thing though? I believe so. Yeah, I think it's still a chain. Yeah. One of these establishments was Papagayo's Cantina, located one and a half miles from the Black Angus and Crossroads McDonald's, where the body was found. The manager at Papagayo's mentioned to police that a sweater and purse were found at a table the past Friday night, the night of the murder, and placed in the lost and found box. The cops go, whoops, we'll take that. Please don't tell anyone about this. <laughs> and among other items in the purse, they found a checkbook in the name of Mary Ann Polreich. Mary Ann went dancing at the Black Angus from time to time. Staff members there recognized her face from a Polaroid taken by Detective Skeen during the autopsy. Skeen and Hansen also realized they'd made a second whoopsie when someone pointed out that Marianne's black Camaro was parked in the Papagayo's parking lot. It had been sitting there for four days before it was connected to her. Quote, a key clue had been overlooked while attention was focused on the black Angus. Isn't that quite surprising? Yeah, that they wouldn't go, where's her car? Yeah. Immediately. One of the first things you would think. And it's also in a huge parking lot that, that empties out at night. So right. it would have been obvious. Yeah, for it not to move for four days, it's, it's just You would nuts. think somebody that worked there mm-hmm. would have called it in as to say like, hey, we know something happened and we've got this car that's not leaving. Or like knew who she was and mm-hmm. recognized that that was her they car. They actually got lucky it didn't get towed. Yeah. That they didn't, that people didn't know, so just called and towed it in and then they never found it. Or stolen. Yeah. Hot commod. Hot Wow, they dropped the ball. That's surprising. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> you know, it's not, yeah, in this episode, it's nice. Other than that, there's not like, much ball dropping. Yeah, they oh, did. This good. one was pretty thorough. But, but in part two, you'll see that there was, I mean, I don't Uh-oh. know, 20 years of ball dropping yeah. before this happened. And I wouldn't necessarily call it ball dropping. It was almost like brushing it under the rug. Yeah. Mm. Pass, uh, passing it, the problem along. Passing yeah. the problem yeah. and, and thinking someone else will deal with yeah. it. Marianne went dancing with two friends at Papagayo's Cantina on Friday, June 22nd. The place had recently undergone renovations a change from its days as the eclectic Saratoga trunk to a new tropical theme. Based on an article in the Tacoma News Tribune from 1982, its overhaul was for the best. Saratoga trunk was a little too quirky for its own good. Its salad bar was, quote, located inside a vintage MG sports car, and the servers dressed as fairy tale characters. Oh. <laughs> what a vivid picture you painted for me. <laughs> and that's just like a little bit of the details. but Just... I would say maybe back in the day, people maybe didn't eat at Saratoga Trunk. I wouldn't. And I certainly wouldn't eat out of a car. Have you ever eaten out of a car? <laughs> no. Have you ever eaten a salad in the tub? <laughs> Good Lord. That makes me think of our our update episode. Polreich was a regular customer at the month-old bar and at its predecessor. She felt at home and went dancing there several nights a week. Marianne's favorite rock band was Boy Toy which played all the clubs in the Seattle-Bellevue area, including the former Saratoga Trunk. From a 1990 article, quote, Boy Toy established itself as one of the most recognizable top 40 cover bands in the Seattle area, playing four shows a week, 48 weeks a year at established dance clubs. And fun fact, Boy Toy is still together. Wow. In September 2023, they played Muckleshoot Casino in Auburn, Washington. That's we fun. I was going to see. Say, I was going to say, ooh, a cover, top 40 cover band. Fun. Yeah. yeah. And no, it's, do I don't it. think I said that in here. It's it's two females, female led band. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. Kelly Moneymaker and Pamela Moore, who at one point 
sang for Queensryche, the band. Oh, okay. Uh, who is from, who are from Bellevue. I had no idea. As is the band Heart. I love Heart. Isn't oh, it? Yeah. I never knew that. That they were from up here? Yeah. Yeah, surprise. Wow. Mary Ann Polreich graduated high school in 1981 and earned business management degrees from Bellevue and Green River Community Colleges. She had plans to study computer science at Seattle Pacific University. One of her teachers called her very bright and exceptional at math. She was the oldest of eight siblings. Shy and self-doubting as a child, she grew up to be confident, sociable, and responsible. Marianne was generous. She never forgot a friend or loved one's birthday. Her brother Eddie said, Mary was not only a sister, she was a friend. On weekends, Marianne attended church and often visited her parents in nearby Ravensdale. For five years, she worked making contact lenses for Bellevue company Cooper Vision. That company closed, and she worked briefly in telemarketing before quitting that job to find other employment. It was during this period that she was killed. Marianne wasn't looking for romance when she went dancing. As a first line of defense from the onslaught of boozy men, she always wore a different pin on her lapel with a clear message. Things like, not tonight, I'm expecting a headache. No wonder you're going home alone. And my favorite, what's your problem, dickface? <laughs> she wasn't into casual sex and was upfront about her intentions. She was there to dance. So the club's shithead denizens confusingly deemed her a bar slut. Marianne dressed in white the night she was killed, adding a yellow sweater to her outfit for a splash of color. Her clothing was never found. At Papagayo's, after she'd had a few electric Long Island iced teas, her favorite drink, there was a change in her demeanor. She grabbed a guy's butt without consent and then played footsie with his crotch. The annoyed man snapped at her to cool it. The men Marianne arrived with soon became bored and left. Marianne also approached the DJ half a dozen times to request they play You Can't Touch This, something of which most of us are guilty. <laughs> One of the bartenders assessed that Marianne was intoxicated, and he served her a glass of water. Later in the evening, she gave one customer the impression that she was looking for a ride home. I have the recipe. Oh, oh if you want electric Long Island iced tea. Let's hear it. Gin, light rum, tequila, vodka, curacao, sour mix, lemon-lime soda, and lemon peel. And Ooh. it sounds delightful. I might try one. That sounds electric. Yeah, three of those would, would do it to you. Wow. That's, that's yuck. <laughs> <laughs> Not a delicious sounding drink to me. At some point, Marianne left Papagayo's and likely caught a ride with someone from the club. She was then raped and killed somewhere, and her body placed within the dumpster corral at the Crossroads Mall. Marks on her back and shoulders showed that she'd been dragged by the feet after death. Police had no idea where the murder had taken place. They pleaded with the public to report anything they might have seen or heard the night Marianne was killed. Neighbors in adjacent apartments reported multiple alarming things heard throughout the night. There was a big brawl in the parking lot and later reports of shouting. These are quotes here. You fucking bitch, don't fuck with me. Were you fucking him? Were you fucking him? And somebody help me. You're hurting me. Stop it. Stop it. You'll kill me. A 911 call from a nearby condo reported hearing a blood-curdling scream. At closing, a despondent man spoke to off-duty detective Mike Beckdolt, who was working part-time as front-door security for Papagayos, about his truck. An acquaintance from the club had borrowed it and not returned. 
Another fight was reported near the dumpster corral behind the restaurant. A drunk man who'd been 86 from some other nearby bar was thrashed by a blonde, ponytailed man, which is just adding insult to injury. <laughs> these were all separate incidents, and oddly, most of these reports turned out to be irrelevant to the murder. All in all, it was considered a, quote, typical weekend night in the parking lot. It was interesting hearing this after having read it. Because, like, I know how some things that connect oh, of yeah. those calls, mm-hmm. you know? Quote, some of the leads and names came from 50 telephone numbers found in Mary Ann's belongings by members of her family, plus addresses and numbers from her room. Barflies sometimes produce useful information, but more often they tied police up with tips and rumors that were firmly rooted in gossip, prejudice, and gin. As Detective Skeen was talking to one young man, a colleague approached and said the man, like others they'd already spoken to, was bullshit. Detective Skeen moved on to another interview. The investigation was soon at an impasse. Nearing 10 a.m. on August 9th, Detective Dale Foote of the Major Crimes Unit and a protege of Detective Skeen was called to the scene of a suicide. When he arrived, an officer approached to inform him, quote, This is a homicide, Dale. This woman didn't kill herself. You'll see when you get inside. It was nearly seven weeks since the Marianne Polreich murder. Hours earlier, around 4 a.m., quote, three East Bellevue boys who were tenting in a backyard heard a howl like a cat in pain. It came from the direction of a condominium occupied by a cocktail waitress and her two young daughters. The woman's name was Carol Marie Beeth. On August 8, 1990, Carol came home from work at 7 p.m. She made dinner for her daughters and read a book on scuba diving for an upcoming trip. She spoke to her mother on the phone at 9, and after midnight, Carol drove to meet a friend and fellow bartender at Mexican restaurant Cucina Cucina. She drank a few sodas with him and left at approximately 2.15 a.m. when they closed. At 2.45, she was seen parking in her driveway. The witness to this, one of the camping neighbor boys, said she looked like she was in a hurry. Quote, At the age of 13, Kelly Beef did the vacuuming, the laundry, the dishes, and dinner. She was a responsible girl with divorced parents, a working mother, and a little sister. So it was Kelly who noticed the morning of August 9, 1990, that her mother's car was still outside, and that her mother apparently had not gone to work. Kelly was confused when her mom's alarm clock began sounding and wasn't quickly shut off. It was 8.30 a.m. She knocked on her mother's bedroom door and found it locked. When she got no answer, she went into the living room and watched TV. Then she started to worry again and went around to the sliding glass door that led to her mother's bedroom. That's some creepy-ass shit. Mm -hmm. Carol's daughter Kelly called her father, Carol's ex, when she found her mom's posed body. He came over and quickly called the police. While neighborhood children camped outside, a friend of Kelly's visited her at her own bedroom window about 4.15 a.m. Fourteen minutes later, Kelly saw someone shine a flashlight into the bathroom, her sister's room, and then her own. She wondered if the power had gone out and looked at her clock. She wondered whether the someone was her mother's boyfriend. Beeth was on her back on the bed. The bedspread was pulled down to the foot of the bed. Her body was unclothed except for a pair of red high-heeled shoes. Her feet were together with legs spread and knees bent. Blood had been smeared on her legs in a manner that resembled finger painting. A rifle had been placed resting symmetrically between Beeth's legs, resting on her shoes. The firearm penetrated approximately five or six inches into her vagina. Her left arm was bent upward at the elbow, 
while her right arm was bent down at the elbow, nearly touching her hip. And you said her daughter found her? Yeah, saw her through the sliding glass door. Yeah. Beef's head was wrapped in a plastic bag and covered with a large pillow. The medical examiner ascertained that Beef's death had been caused by head injuries. The injuries were inflicted by an instrument swung with considerable force in rapid succession. The blows left distinct Y-shaped marks and crushed the entire left side of Beef's skull. She had also been struck many times with a knee or fist in the torso. Her ribs were broken, and her liver was lacerated. There were no fingerprints present at the scene that shouldn't have been there. Quote, A fabric glove impression left on the sheet of her bed suggested that the murderer wore gloves. The body wore a diamond ring, a gold chain, and an opal pendant inscribed with Number One Mom. Detective Foote recognized Carol from making bar checks back when he was a patrol officer. She tended bar at several Bellevue establishments. Carol Marie Jonart was born on October 10, 1954 in Butte, Montana, to Bernice and Robert Jonart. She was the fourth child born to the family. The first, Robert, died at only three months old in 1948. Sisters Roberta and Mary were born soon after, followed by Carol a few years later. Though Carol never met her baby brother, she became well acquainted with tragedy over time. In 1971, Carol's father died suddenly at age 50 from a blood clot. In 1985, Mary Jonart died at age 34. In March 1990, sibling Roberta died from lung cancer at age 40, only six months after her diagnosis. Carol married Paul Beeth of North Dakota in 1974, and the couple literally lived on Easy Street in Butte, Montana, before relocating to Bellevue. They divorced 10 years after the move, but remained close as they continued raising their daughters, Kelly and Jamie. A co-worker of Carol's, who called her mom, described Carol as, quote, pretty selfless, very sweet. She was tough, too, with troublesome customers. As a bartender, she had a big local following. She was quick-witted and skilled at roasting co-workers and crappy customers. Detective John Hansen compared the murders. Quote, in the Polreich posing, it was almost like there was remorse. The other case is entirely different. Whoever killed Carol Beef acted from pure rage, extreme personal rage, a desire to shock and humiliate and degrade. A few days after the Beef killing, G.B. Coffin, a former Bellevue bartender, learned of the loss of her friend Carol. A server from Black Angus called Hawaii to break the news and told her that the other waitresses were terrified. GB had moved to Hawaii July 12, 1990, with her children and her partner, in part to get away from a growing uneasiness at her job, and especially after Mary Ann Polreich's murder. GB said of her friend, Carol Beeth, that poor woman went from one romantic crisis to another, a marriage that was on and off and on and off, a semi-steady boyfriend who slept around, various Casanovas and lechers and sex fiends who hit on her every night at the bar, and a few young men whom she hit on herself, sometimes winding up in situations that were awkward for a married woman with two children. And yet, Carol was always smiling, always up, one of the happiest women on the East Side nightclub scene. She was one of my best friends. We babysat each other's kids. Speaking to police, GB relayed a concerning event. One evening at Black Angus, she and Carol were talking. They were gossiping about some of the annoying, slobbish, and creepy customers GB had to contend with on a nightly basis. 
As they spoke, GB looked around and saw that one of the men they were talking about was glaring at them. She could tell that the man knew they were mocking him. GB felt disturbed, and her mind conjured the parking lot outside, which was a minefield of intoxicated and possibly dangerous people after closing. Quote, Beat's family also informed the police that she had half a dozen small Crown Royal bags in the top drawer of her dresser, containing silver dollars and other change from tips. When police allowed Paul, her ex, to re-enter the house, he noticed the Crown Royal bags were missing. Regarding the time after the second murder, Detective Skeen admitted, I ended up chasing ghosts and wasting time. It took me a while to gain enough maturity to learn that wasting time is the nature of the job. The final woman killed in this series of violent sexual homicides was 24-year-old Andrea Levine, who went by Randy. She was born in West Point, New York, and had two brothers, Doug and Stu. The engagement of Randy to a Scott Walter was announced in the newspaper in May 1985, with a date set for 1987, but the marriage never happened. Randy was studying to earn her GED and worked as a communications specialist, or secretary, at a business service center. She lived in a basement apartment in the Kingsgate area north of Bellevue. Above the basement was the home of owners Patricia Hayes and her spouse Bob, a public information officer for the Bellevue Fire Department. Thursday evening, August 30th, 1990, Randy met her boyfriend at a restaurant in Kirkland, where they planned a camping trip for that weekend to the nearby San Juan Islands. The boyfriend walked Randy to her 71 Dotson, and she drove home around 10 p.m., the keychain hanging from her ignition read, Bitch on Wheels. I love all the keychains and pins and stuff oh, in this. Yeah. The slogans, they're terrific. At 5 a.m., Randy's landlord, Bob Hayes, let their dog, Demi, toss out, and he saw a dark figure about 25 to 30 feet away in the yard. Hayes chased the man, but stopped because he was unarmed. The police were called, and they examined the property, but not the basement apartment where Randy lived. Dropping them balls. Oh, yeah, there's another one. Later in the morning, he knocked on her door to tell her about the prowler. When there was no answer, he let himself into the apartment. He checked the purse on the kitchen counter and noticed that her keys were gone. He figured Randy had gone on a last-minute camping trip. Unsettled by the prowler and a rash of recent home burglaries in the neighborhood, Bob installed motion sensor lights on the house that weekend. Three days later, on Monday, September 3rd, Patricia Hayes smelled old blood when she entered the apartment to feed Randy's hungry cats. She found Randy's body on the bed, covered in a sheet. A blood-stained pillowcase lay on the floor. Bob Hayes called 911. Quote, Well, it's our renter, and it appears she's been dead for a few days. And then this is the 911 uh, operator. Do you think natural? No, uh, it doesn't look that way. And then the operator again. Okay, we'll be right over. And then Bob said, Okay, um, you can save the lights and siren, because there's nothing to do. And she was feeding the cat because she was supposed to be gone anyway for the camping. No, trip? I think it was just like that. Yeah, there was no plan, but I think that it was something that that Randy oh, they did, did often. Yeah, okay. and so I think she figured, oh, she was just away and forgot about the cat's food. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Another time when neighbors cared about each other. Mm -hmm. Randy had been beaten to death with the aluminum baseball bat she kept by her bed for protection. Randy's landlords and upstairs neighbors, the Hayes, kept their door unlocked so Randy could run to them if there was a break-in. Randy was only 24 at the time of her death. King County detective and 17-year law enforcement veteran Larry Peterson arrived to the scene at 1 p.m. He was known as a great interviewer and had been extremely lucky eight years earlier. 
Peterson was away on vacation when the Green River Killer Task Force was formed, so he missed out on that particularly soul-sucking investigation. Randy's body was naked and posed spread-eagled on the bed, with a vibrator jammed in her mouth. Her eyes are purple-black and swollen shut. A hardcover copy of the book, More Joy of Sex, is tucked under the left arm. The forehead looks shattered under the skin. Through a large hole above the right brow, the brain is visible. Dark blood soaks her hair and the bedsheet beneath her. The body showed post-mortem wounds from the scalp to the feet. Quote, small, neat stab wounds are their description in the book Charmer. This is a practice called peakerism, in which sexual arousal is derived from, quote, penetrating another person's body with sharp objects. Peakerism is a paraphilia and form of sadism. The most frequently targeted areas of the body are the breasts, buttocks, or groin. From the crime scene and autopsy photos, though, to me they look more akin to small scoops taken from the flesh. The wounds are small, ovalish, and those along the buttocks and thighs are deep enough to expose the fat layer beneath. To my layman's eye, the marks have the appearance of being made by a small, sharp spoon. The bottom edge of many wounds look torn away, and there is no mention I can find of those pieces being seen or collected by police. Which makes me wonder, where did they go? So I don't know this case at all, but you did show me crime scene photos that you had found, and I totally agreed with you because you had said, someone had said maybe these were knife wounds, but they don't look linear. And as someone who has dealt with a lot of talons going into my skin and taking chunks, it really looked like fingernail. Didn't he have long nails, Josh? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll get into that next episode. <laughs> but yes, he did. So in my layman's what, eyes yeah. uh, of not being any kind of professional except someone who has had a lot of nail injuries, I would say I wouldn't be surprised if if it was proven to have been fingernails. So for a visual, it just had that very small oval but I can't sure. imagine a fingernail getting deep enough to expose the fat layer. I think they could, especially really? if they were sharpened. And when you have the desire and the strength, and if you don't have a body fighting back, I could totally see that happening. Yeah, uh, Em, if you, if you desire, you can look at the crime scene photos. I have the, a link on the sources. And since you've read the book, to actually see the wounds is, like, is night yeah. and day. Okay. Yeah. It honestly looked, when, when I first saw it, the picture of, of the body on its stomach and you can see the wounds on the butt and the thighs. And to me, it looked like some sort of, uh, like a, like a, like when you scoop the skin off or like scrape the skin off a pumpkin and there's like kind of like that flesh yeah, beneath. Yeah, oh, yeah. It looks like that. It looks deep like that. Interesting. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's, um, a really unusual wound and I've never, I don't think we've ever had any case that has had that sort of thing, mm -hmm. that kind of mutilation. I don't think so. Peakerism is also people who will like go on public transportation and like slash people's clothing or like uh, slash their butt. Well, that happened to one of my friends in college. We <gasps> went out dancing and a guy took a box cutter to her leather pants. Oh my God. Yeah. And Did she didn't get her skin. No, but she didn't notice for a little while. And she goes, Oh my God, I think that guy just cut my oh clothing. Oh my God. And her whole like right butt cheek was exposed. That is so scary. That could have been really bad. Yeah. It was one of those like 18 and up clubs. Oof. Oh, the well, scariest places on up planet front, Earth. Up front is what it was called. Do you remember that one? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> We're bad news. Up front. <laughs> We're letting you know up front. Yeah. You shouldn't be here. Youngsters, don't go to 18 and over clubs. <laughs> Just don't. Wait till you're 21. <laughs> you don't. Especially if they let people... Because it's the over. That, yes. yeah, he was older. No. He was older. It's the, it was it's the over eight. It's not 18 mm -mm. to 21. It's 
at least 18. So that's where the so freaks gross. come in. But we left after that. I'm like, clearly this yeah. isn't where we should be when we have just as much fun at home. like And not get slashed. The sliding glass door which led out of the apartment to the backyard was undisturbed. Randy's killer had slipped in and out through the garage door, which was left propped open for her two cats to come and go as they pleased. Detectives noted that her answering machine was full of anxious messages looking for answers regarding her absence. At the formal autopsy, there were few surprises. Andrea Levine had been the victim of a blitz attack, with death caused by blunt impact injuries to the head and fractures of vault and base of skull. Her back bore three long scratches, apparently made with a knife or fingernail. There were three substantial stab wounds in the anal area and a total of 231 peaker wounds on the body, including seven in the sole of the right foot and nine in the left. Did they, I can't remember, did they describe the type of person that would do that, like in any detail? Like, did they put together kind of a picture of this person? Oh, yeah. They said a a sadistic necrophile. Okay. Yeah. So, which I think encompassed a lot of different uh, paraphilic acts. Mm -hmm. That's a scary sounding combo. Yeah. Which, I mean, often correlates to like women hating. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Interesting to see where this is going to go. Randy was buried at Brevard Memorial Park in Cocoa, Florida. I believe she had family there. Randy had lived there for six months before moving to Washington. Something I noticed with the coverage of these murders is that there's less and less information about the victims as time goes on. I could find a good amount of information, uh, you know, biographical information for Marianne Polreich and then less for Carol Beeth and then very little regarding Andrea Levine. I don't know what that is. Is it like the people lose interest? I think they're now more concerned about the killer themselves. And less about the victim. Yeah, then it's, well, like we've seen with the Portland potential serial killer guy, there was almost like that buzz of serial killer. So then it becomes. Yeah, and then there was hardly anything about the women. Yeah. I think it's a pretty common thing we run into until somebody goes back and writes a book or digs into who these people were, interviews the family members. Yeah, I wish I had more more to say about them. I I, I found as much as I could possibly find, and it was still just, just not a whole lot. Can we have any kind of teaser as far as, um, I don't know. What the next episode will be? No, just like what connected or, I don't know, a tease of how they found him or what led Mm -hmm. them to him. It's it's almost too much to say. It's like I said, he had a long record. And so it was sort of like this swirling mass of information that that eventually led to him. But I will say there were a couple of things that Josh brought up in the calls that went to police the night of the first body was found that connect to this person. Oh, okay. Yeah, all that's coming back, yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a fascinating case and I'll go into the entire history of this person as well as the, you know, legal, legal proceedings that went on and what happened to that person. And uh, it's in good. The end. It is. It's, good, a, it's, you a, guys. it's a unique case, not just for the violence and the acts that took place during the murders, but the the man the who did the person them. himself. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. He's a he's a one of a kind, I will say. Yeah. And I had yeah, I just had no idea who he was or what he was like or anything about him until I started reading the book and I was really surprised by a yeah. lot of things. Isn't it surprising he's not more mainstream I, talked about? I can't believe it. Hold yeah. on to your butts. Yeah. Is basically what we're saying. With both hands. And I will say content warning if anyone does go to the blog to look at the photos that they are 
uncensored. Oh, oh yeah, I have that link. the The link itself actually has that uh, gra- content warning. Okay, that the images are graphic. I mean, yeah. when you when you click on that link, the first image you see, the background is one of the crime scene photos, and it's I the, can it's the one I with can the also firearm. add the photos in a slider so that it doesn't show it. I can put a content okay. warning, oh, and then cool. they can click yeah. next. Because it's Cause on one hand, it was educational for me to have seen them because I can reference. I just keep thinking about her daughter seeing her because I've seen that photo, and that was not my mother. I will take a look at them and make a judgment call on that and otherwise I, we can leave it in a link for people yeah but it's just you know on one hand it shows his depravity and how hideous it was but yeah it's just as many serial killers as we've had i don't know that we've really had that many that posed people the no, green just, river yeah, he kind of did yep, some just we've had two i think oh yeah that yeah. was one one of i think it might have been it might have been detective foot or maybe or peterson or hansen i don't know one of those detectives had been one of the one of the detectives on the scene with the Green River Killer who was posed with a trout around her neck and the sausage, uh-huh. he had seen that. So one of the detectives had had witnessed something like that. Was there ever a moment, Josh, that or Emily, for either of you, because you've both you're both familiar with this case, was there ever a moment that this was considered Green River Killer or not? Because it was like in their inside, you know, she was in her home and the other gal was at a dumpster. It was yeah. I like, don't recall that, Josh. Did they bring that? I mean, I know a lot of cases. That happens. Yeah, they brought like, it Those up. Are Green River. I think it was the the difference in the in the methods. Method. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. his was very clear. Yeah, this is very especially different. Especially with the but... liver damage. Oh yeah, uh-huh. like yeah. that is very unique. To and this the case. blunt force. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah how much violent. how much rage was inside of yeah. the person committing those acts? Yeah, that's yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, well, I don't think it was ever confused. They just brought it up as an just ex- double check comparison. Yeah. And it must have been, I mean, at the time that all of those things were happening, all of these murders were happening, I cannot imagine. I mean, I'm not to say like people weren't suffering too, but the police must have just, their heads must have been spinning. Well, that's why they had so many FBI agents in the state. They had task force everywhere. Like it was all hands on deck. The scope of that, like Emily, you're going to be revisiting that case soon. And then I'm following up with someone whose mother was a victim and they initially processed it as Green River, even mm-hmm. though it wasn't like it was so it's he was probably, so I mean, prolific. he was he was he's the most prolific from yeah. Washington. And they still are looking into is is this a victim because yeah. he couldn't remember them all. Yeah. Do you guys know anything about uh, Bellevue? I was just wondering. Yeah, I've that, been there a few yeah, times because the, the that, because right? the description in the book is from, you know, 1990 or. Oh, it's right. still has Bellevue changed. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say the nightlife is so such a center now. It's more of business. Well, is it is it as like kind of ritzy? Yes. And, okay. Yeah, it's oh, it is still, okay. I was yeah. wondering. So I used to do escrow was my first job out of out of college. And I worked up in the Seattle area and I would uh, occasionally handle houses out of that area. And I remember I had to drive there once to drop off some paperwork. And I'm like, oh, this looks like an expensive place to right. live. Yeah, uh, he was saying like it's basically the Beaverton of yeah. Portland, but for Seattle. But but real estate isn't like Beaverton's still reasonable in comparison. Well, yeah, livable. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to make like San Francisco tech money. Well, to yeah, there's it. a lot of tech people up there, so it's very expensive. Well, Everywhere in Washington sense, yeah. is ritzy these days. Yeah, it's yeah, a white I, center. <laughs> I was wondering if uh, like I I kind of found that the reputation of some places change after. Right. And yeah. The, and, the, and the places themselves change. They kind of can like sink into crime and things like that. I think this one didn't only yeah. because of the influx of tech in the area. <laughs> just the massive wealth. Yeah. yeah. yeah it just, just kept it going because before it was just like rich shopping like L.A. types. Mm-hmm. And now it's like a tech mecca. A tecca. A tecca. That's right. Next episode. 
I'll tell you about the man responsible for the murders of Marianne Polreich, Carol Beeth, and Randy Levine. He was well known to police and had a criminal record as long as the I-5. His name is George, and he could talk his way out of just about anything. And a fun fact to end on, in the intervening years, Papagayo's Cantina went from hot dance club to featuring nude dancers in an effort to stay open, and in 1995, the space was turned into a Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> the American dream. When you're sliding into home and your pants are full of foam, <laughs> diarrhea. One time I got the worst diarrhea of my life in Las Vegas for brother's wedding. And she, all she wanted to do was go by the pool, but she didn't want to go by herself. And I'm like, I have the, I cannot be more than a minute from the pool. So we, I'm like, let's, let's just like, I'll try to get as much out as I can and then we'll go to the pool. <laughs> so she just sat outside the bathroom door while I had massive diarrhea, making up new verses to that song. <laughs> it was so funny. That's friendship. <laughs> we were rolling too, so that diarrhea story will be <laughs> in there probably. When you're sliding into home and your pants are full of foam. Diarrhea. Diarrhea. When you're sliding into first and you feel it's going to burst. Diarrhea. 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 Told me about how her friend accidentally shit her pants at school and had to call her from the bathroom and beg for her gym shorts. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. What? I just misspelled a word. Oh, my God. Was it... Angus, did you put Anus Steakhouse? No, oh my god! You know, I never Anus did. Anus Steakhouse. I never did. Did you guys grow up near any Black Angus restaurants? Yes, sure I did. Did, I did. they? Did people always like like blow out the G so that it said Black Anus? Because the one in Burbank did. I think <laughs> I saw one one time. Oh, I did. Terrific. And then I was like, ha ha ha. Stuart Anderson's Black Angus. Did you just fart? That was my chair, left arm. <laughs> I swear. Let's see if I can recreate it. Yep, I didn't fart. <laughs> yep, I didn't fart. If it can be recreated, it wasn't a That's fart. That's correct. Hmm. Careful, you're going to end up farting. Or sharding. <laughs> we don't have time for you to change your panties, so just get on with it. <laughs> when you're sitting in a chair and your butt is full of air, diarrhea. I'm loving this diarrhea talk <laughs> so much. It's your favorite word. It's one of them. It's the beautiful word. Uh, it's fine. It was just a Mexican restaurant we went to. Oh, great story. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for mentioning it. <laughs> well, I didn't want to derail because it was a whole thing of like no silverware and I don't remember all of no it. No underwear. Yeah. Just all sorts of things. Fine. Diarrhea. <laughs> Literally so much dancing in that book. Oh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> what? And at its predecessor, prece- <laughs> some of the leads. Hit. Hit. It came from the direct... No, I really had to cough. I was waiting for him to cough. Mm -hmm. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>